Welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. My husband and I tangled our handlebars on a bike ride, and as we fell, he fell harder and also hit his head. And so there was sort of this dual experience of traumatic brain injuries and not having a community. I was not near family where, and I didn't have many people, I was brand new, there wasn't even a friend network to go to. And so in that space, my husband and I ended up sort of, we just hooked each other's sort of negative thinking patterns. And instead of moving closer together in that crucible, there was a moment where we really started to move apart. And there was a conversation where both of us said to each other, you aren't the person that I married. I'm not sure what's happening here, but this isn't gonna work. So there was very much a moment where we weren't sure we were gonna make it as a couple. For a married couple, crucibles don't get much more serious than that. In the midst of an already difficult time, confronting the thought that the love you vowed would last forever might not even last a few more months. Yet that is exactly where today's guest, Kaylee Klimp, found herself a few years ago. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show and the communications director for Crucible Leadership. On today's episode, Warwick talks to Kaylee about how her relationship with her husband, Nate, got to such a perilous crossroads and how the two of them were able to pull it back from the precipice. The key, you'll hear, was in changing their paradigm from marriage being about quote-unquote fairness to making it about radical generosity. It's impossible, Kaylee argues, for any relationship, particularly a lifelong romantic one, to be 50-50. That's why the Clemps wrote the 80-80 marriage, which makes the compelling case that both spouses have to be committed to giving more than they expect to receive to make wedded bliss a reality. And here's the bonus for professionals like the Clemps and many of you, our listeners. The principles she discusses are wise practices for the boardroom as well as the living room. I'd love to hear a little bit about Kaylee and maybe how you, you know, where you grew up and your family, just a bit about kind of the background of who is uh, Kaylee Warner-Clamp and what makes you you, so to speak. Oh, I love that question. Well, thank you, Gary. Thank you, Warwick. I'm so delighted to be here. So I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, which happens to be where I live now. And, you know, little girl, um, one of the things that I think is kind of neat about my past is that my parents decided when I was in kindergarten that I would be in the bilingual class in my elementary school. And so I'm not sure if you know much about Boulder, Colorado. It is not well known for its diversity. And yet I got to be in classroom kindergarten through sixth grade where for that entire period of time, I think I was the only girl in my class who spoke English at home. And so there's just, it's a neat place to start to develop perspective and empathy and I have to think that some of that fueled my desire to understand people even more that shows up in my life today. So I'm the oldest of three kids. we got a brother and a sister. My folks are still right here in Boulder. I'm really lucky that my family is awesome. Well, I think you were telling me earlier that Nate's parents are also from Boulder. And I think you said what all your family is pretty much within 
45 minutes or at least your parents and Nate's parents and you have a daughter. I mean, that's, um, I'm assuming you probably get on reasonably well with them all. I mean, it could be a blessing <laughs> or not. <laughs> so. Thankfully, we don't, we don't live under one roof. I think that would be too close. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's been, work It's such a gift that if I think about it through the lens of my nine-year-old, it really is a village that's helping to raise her. So today, actually, she is with my parents um, up skiing in the mountains. So, you know, there's something really magical about, I think my in-laws are phenomenal. I'm one of the just luckiest people in the world, but, you know, all of the mother-in-law stories don't apply for me. She's actually (laughs) wonderful. And I didn't grow up near my grandparents. Um, My parents were both from Michigan and my grandparents, when I was little, I was in Colorado, they were in Michigan and in Florida. And seeing my daughter's closeness with her grandparents, I wouldn't trade lives with anybody except maybe her. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that is so um, neat. I mean, my parents are no longer living, but they were in Australia and I've lived here since the early 90s. And my wife's parents were from Ohio. So we saw them and then spent part of the year in Florida. So we saw them quite a lot. But yeah, I think people don't appreciate it. A little bit off track here, but life in Australia is very different than here because Australia is the same size geographically as the United States, but there's not that many people, not a whole lot in the middle. So if you're from Sydney, which I am, pretty much, you know, all your friends, they'll go to university, you know, Sydney University, University of New South Wales. So I have an older sister that has uh, four daughters and they kind of all live pretty near now, if you're like more than 20 minutes, you're like, oh my gosh, the other side of the Harbour Bridge, you're like forever. So I don't realize in Australia being near family is not that uncommon because you're from Sydney. Why would you go somewhere else? You know, nothing against Melbourne, but you just get used to Sydney. So in America, it's very different. People are everywhere, like obviously your experience with in Michigan. So it sounds like you had pretty... Uh, good upbringing and i think i saw some of the tedx talk when you were a little girl and the whole peanut butter and jelly uh shoelace thing it's so so neat i guess maybe some perfectionist tendency i think it's probably the story and yeah but it was a it was a good point there it was a fun image and fun story so (laughs) i appreciate you watching yeah indeed i was uh some perfectionist tendencies for sure and a bit of a precocious little girl to scold my mother on her sandwich making skills (laughs) (laughs) So uh, before we get into 80-80 marriage, what kind of led you on the path that you're on? Because you um, you just have a passion for leadership and helping uh, leaders think maybe more holistically from everything from values inventory to Enneagram mindset. Was there something about your upbringing or family? What led you on the journey that you're on? What's sort of the origin story, if you will, of why you do what you do? So I can actually trace it to a moment. So Mm. my dad, when I was growing up, he was an entrepreneur and ran a software company. And once upon a time when computers took up, you know, entire rooms rather than (laughs) pockets, he laughs now about like, I remember having a program in the middle of the night because it was the only time it was cool enough where the computer wouldn't overheat. So totally different world. But he was part of an organization called YPO, our young president's organization. And when he sold his company, he was asked to come facilitate some events. And in 1999, he asked me, I was at university, 
So he said, you know, hey, do you want to come see what I'm up to? Do you want to come participate in this event that I'm facilitating? I said, sure. I mean, how <laughs> interesting could it be? So I went to the event and that was the moment in 1999 where I absolutely fell in love with this tool set and knew that I wanted to be committed to it. So, and really specifically what it was is that through that experience, I saw people see themselves more clearly, see some of the patterns and the choices that they had been making in their lives more clearly. And that facilitated a path for them to actually make different choices and to do things differently in their lives going forward. So, you know, as you saw in my TED talk, I don't think that should get us very far, but I actually think deep self-understanding and making choices can and seeing that happen for person after person, I was hooked. I was like, okay, I want to do that. Hmm. So there's something about just helping people understand who they are. I mean, I think people can intellectually realize that that's important, but somehow that particular vision resonated very deeply to you. Because somebody could have said, oh, that's neat, but okay, that's important. But why did you feel like that was for you? Why did that like tug at your heartstrings? Or why did that piece of music, if you will, really feel like this really fits who I am and what I believe in? Gosh, that's an excellent question. I think it was mostly about having people, to your point, it it was that they saw themselves more clearly, but I think they also were able then to see the ways that they were creating, I'm going to call it suffering. And there are different Mm -hmm. flavors of that, you know, certainly very acute, dramatic, and also sort of more subtle, almost like a rock in your shoe kind of suffering. But in seeing that, they could realize what some of the things they had been doing were costing them. And that to me, I think what tugged at my heartstring was recognizing this was a way that I could participate in people making their own lives better. And then I think about, and gosh, against this backdrop of COVID where there's so much about contagiousness, the idea of if I can help people be contagious for good, in their own lives and in the companies that they're leading, in the teams that they're on, in the families that they're members of, that I think really pulled at my heart. Right, because I think probably a bit like you, I mean, good leadership can make such a difference. I mean, I have three kids, uh, they're in their 20s, and you know, I've done my share, fair share of helping him prep for interviews and somewhat good at that, <laughs> got a lot of practice and throw out all these questions, you know, well, why do you want this job? And what about you really fits here? And yeah, what are your strengths? And then the, the awful question is, what are your weaknesses? Yeah, how do you answer that and still be positive? So, <laughs> but yet be honest. So exactly, and have it not feel like the person on the other side is like, that's not a real weakness. Thanks for trying. <laughs> yeah, like when I applied to Harvard Business School, you don't want to sort of write, well, I'm a bit of a workaholic and I'm so dedicated to studying that I just all of my you know other life goes by the wayside. It's just so trite. But yeah, I mean it's. What I tell them is assume that most bosses you work for won't be good. You know, they mm-hmm. might be really good, but on it's not like 90% of bosses are, you know, clued in, empathetic, strong leaders, but yet listen, it's just don't assume that's normal because it's just not. It's like yeah. typically with if you have an issue in performance, the time you find out is when the pink slip happens and you're fired. And it's like, well, I just don't like giving negative feedback and it just makes me feel uncomfortable. So I, I feel better if I just ask you to leave. That way we don't, it's, it's easier for me. 
And it's that's, so funny. That's I, I was actually having this conversation this morning with somebody who runs people and talent. <laughs> and the conversation that we were in is the imperative of early and direct feedback for exactly the reason that you're saying that if you give constructive feedback early, then people know what to work on. They know where they stand. There's clear expectations and there aren't surprises later on. But the piece that we were talking about that's really interesting that I think you're alluding to is the hidden cost of trust when there isn't that conversation. Because then people who are, they think they're doing well because they also aren't receiving feedback start to have that worry in the back of their mind. You know, is that pink slip coming for me? And so there's sort of a, a distrust of, absence of feedback or too much positive feedback if there isn't sort of the balance of constructive feedback. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously in the family business I grew up in, which listeners know it was a large, you know, 150-year-old family media business. There were times, especially when it was founded, where it was run very well. The uh, John Fairfax, my great-great-grandfather, he was, yeah, everything he, you know, it would be, I don't know if he did the 80-80 marriage, but he, pretty, he had a wonderful marriage, wonderful a great relationship with his kids, an elder at his church, his employees loved him, and he grew a very successful business. I mean, it's really everything was in balance. But there were days more in the more recent past when it wasn't really so well run. But, you know, I can think of one kind of episode that really illustrates perhaps good leadership, some of the things you'd probably advocate, is years ago before I went to Oxford, I had like an internship at J. Walter Thompson, which it was a big advertising agency back in the day, about four or five ad agency mergers ago. And there was a guy out from Canada who was running, you know, the Australian operation. And he made a point at these all-hands meeting of praising people. Now, it so happened that that local agency had, you know, the local Kellogg's account. And so they said, you know, I've been chatting to the J. Walter Thompson folks back in the U.S., and North America, and they said that the work that you've done here on Kellogg's Street is some of the best work that Kellogg's has seen worldwide in jail to Tom. So he said that to the team, and I thought, boy, that's good leadership. He's praising them specifically in, you know, amidst their peers who also worked there. So that sounds like a, a normal thing to do, but that's not normal, that kind of uh, specific praise. I, one of the things I say, one of my little adages, is when it comes to praise, if you see something, say something. You know, Absolutely. and be specific and encourage. Yeah. It's one of my highest values. So, uh, but anyway, that's a whole. I, I think that the specificity is one of the things that so often also gets lost, right? Sort of the generic email that says, hey, team, good job. I mean, it means a little something, but very quickly finds its way to the delete folder. Whereas the specificity of the recognition, who said it, to whom, I think, to your point, has it stick and feel really more significant and true. Absolutely. So before we get to 80-80 marriage, I know, speaking of origin stories, from what I understand, there was a bit of an origin story, like 2007 was not a good year. I know the, I'm reminded of Queen Elizabeth, who she had a year, she called her Annas Horribilis, a horrible year in which Windsor Castle almost burnt down, and it was a pretty tough year for her, so... Uh, Pretty remarkable woman. Was she like 95 and still riding horses? I mean, it's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> I think her husband's like 97. And uh, I think they've tried to discourage him from driving as much as <laughs> before because he's had a couple of accidents. But look, we all would over 95. 
But uh, yeah, so talk about 2007 and why that was such a tough year and how that was sort of part of the backstory of how 8080 Marriage and the book came from. Yeah, it's a hard story in some respects, because as you were saying, Gary, when we started the show, it's not necessarily fun to go back and relive. We refer to right. it, uh, them as the dark years. <laughs> right. so the, uh, the backstory of, of 2007 is that, so I'm originally from Colorado. I went to school in California, sort of more of a West Coast mountain grow, you know, past and moved out to New Jersey to be with my brand new husband. And people would ask, you know, oh, you're newlyweds, you know, how's the extended honeymoon? <laughs> and that was not our experience. That so what had happened is my younger sister, that time was 20, was a student in Boston and was a pedestrian hit by a drunk driver. And so she was in the hospital. She was in a coma, experienced quite a number of physical injuries, spent some time uh, in a wheelchair, traumatic brain injury. And that was sort of the beginning of this year of our marriage. Right on the heels of that, literally weeks later, my husband and I tangled our handlebars on a bike ride. And as we fell, he fell harder and also hit his head. And so there was sort of this dual experience of traumatic brain injuries and not having a community. I was not near family where, and I didn't have my people. I was brand new. There wasn't even a friend network to go to. And so in that space, my husband and I ended up sort of, we just hooked each other's sort of negative thinking patterns. And instead of moving closer together in that crucible, there was a moment where we really started to move apart. And there was a conversation where both of us said to each other, you aren't the person that I married. I'm not sure what's happening here, but this isn't going to work. So there was very much a moment where we weren't sure we were going to make it as a couple. And so as I fast forward to, you know, two springs ago out on a hike, which now we do date nights also, but really we're most committed to date hikes. Yeah. There was that backdrop and looking back and wondering, really the catalyst of this book, The 80-80 Marriage, is about the context of modern marriage and looking at, hey, now against this backdrop where we're with our partners, we want things to be fair, we treat each other as equals, and oh my goodness, the list of things that we are trying to accomplish in a day, a week, a month really is quite extensive. How do you do that and stay connected and in love? We often would refer back to 2007 and say, what do we wish we had known then? How do we wish we had been able to establish our mindset? Gosh, if we could go give advice to ourselves back in 2007, who knows how stubborn we would have been and whether or not we would have taken good advice, but where do we wish we had laid a different foundation and now when I work with leaders and with couples and based on the hundred interviews that we did with couples to say, what are the tools and what are the practices that help those really work? Can I go back to 2007? And because I want to get one little slice of emotion from you in that you and your husband at that time professionally were making it work. You were in a professional context, working with leaders. You were thought leaders. Yes. And you came to a point where you realized, I think you tell me if this is what happened, but you were thought leaders who realized that maybe you were practice strugglers. 
What did that feel like as you're advising people, here's the proper way to navigate work relationships, you're having trouble navigating your marriage relationship. What kind of dissonance did that cause for you emotionally? That's a great question, Gary. If I were going to look back and analyze what I was doing at that point in time, I was using work as a way to escape from how hard things were in my personal life. And so in some ways, I think I was able to compartmentalize and say, hey, professional relationships are different from intimate relationships. And out of one side of my mouth, I think I might still say that's true, but I think they are actually much more closely connected than I would have given them credit for. I think the dissonance to your point was happening from the perspective of saying like, I can't do this. And sort of the facing into the struggle and the sadness and then not having sort of the cover story of, I don't know about you, but you can sort of sit on a, on a podcast or, you know, on a Zoom or give a talk and sort of here's the shiniest, most, you know, palatable version of myself right. to then sort of turn, you know, turn off the camera and really cry quite hard. Hmm. I mean, it's interesting that you were both successful. Obviously, you've got a whole consulting, coaching career. You mentioned, you know, your husband, is, uh, is, it, is he a sort of academic consultant? Just don't, I mean, he's, uh, yeah, he's so, pretty successful in his own right. Yeah. yeah, at that point in time, he was getting his PhD. So we both, we met at Boulder High, which I think is such a cute part of our story. <laughs> We were chemistry lab partners, I will save you all of the puns. Um, <laughs> and then both went off to Stanford, and then I stayed in California when he went right. to New Jersey, so he was getting his PhD at Princeton. But to your point, winning teaching awards, you know, publishing his dissertation, doing research, you know, to then be a professor at Pepperdine, where many, many students were looking up to him, you know, the same way that leaders would sort of look to me. And so there is a moment to like, are we taking our own advice and what advice do we have to take? Well, it is interesting, you know, sort of the old joke when you um, maybe chatting to, I don't know, some support folks, like for instance, if you have an Apple computer and you have an issue, the support teams are so incredible. They're so helpful, but you wonder if they get off the phone. You could be talking to them for an hour about something so stupidly simple and says, that's okay. You know, that's fine. I can help you with the next step. And they get off the phone with their significant other and probably zero patients and maybe start yelling and, you know, and it's like, okay, so you seem to be so good professionally, so calm, so patient. And then when it comes to family, where is that person? Where did they go? Is it kind of captured by aliens? I mean, what is the deal here? It's probably something that you find, right? That not only other people, but you, did you find that you and your husband were professionally, how you dealt with people was, was very different than how you dealt internally? Gosh, I'm thinking about my nine-year-old daughter who she will come home from school and sort of, you know, have a fit or be upset or, you know, no manners. I'm like, I don't understand. Your teacher says you're so good. <laughs> and she said to me when she was like, mom, I used up all my good behavior at school. <laughs> and so is, sounds like you could identify with that a bit, huh? <laughs> and so that's sort of the story that I'm thinking about where I, I think there can be a moment where it's, 
you know, sort of I used up all my patience or I used up all my good behavior. I used up all my good questions. And I think there's a bit of, I'm going to call it like a reprioritization where in recognizing, and I think about this a lot in present day is who are my most important relationships and am I treating them as such? Or am I, you know, using up all my good behavior with strangers and giving my most precious relationships, my husband, my daughter, my family, my dearest friends sort of the dregs. And if that's the case, how can I adjust where I'm spending my time and energy so that I'm nurturing that those that I would say are most important? It's funny how often we devote so much time to professional lives. Obviously, you want to look and act professional, be understanding, because if you don't, it's not good for your career. Nobody wants to work for somebody that's just, you know, rants, raves, impatient. It's not a good way to you know, get promoted or to get business. And so it's like, okay, that's an obvious that's going to hurt my career <laughs> paycheck. I can't do that. At home, it's not the same. But I know you do a lot of things like 360 feedbacks, Enneagram, values inventory. Do you have a kind of laughingly say, gee, I wonder if I did a personal values inventory about what's important to me. Like, you know, I don't do as much executive coaching with, you know, I've got a book coming out next year and do a bunch of other things. But one of the things that I would sometimes ask clients, you know, tell me about your values. And then to what degree do you think that you're living your values? And then I would say with a straight face, if they say, well, I'm not really living that. Okay, so would you prefer to kind of change your values or change what you're doing? And I would say with a straight face, because as a coach, it's the client's choice. If they want to change their values, who am I to judge somebody else, some other human being? And I actually as a coach, really believe in not judging other people's paths. Everybody has their own journey. Well, 99.9% of sane people aren't going to say, I'm going to change my values. Okay, well then, it's just so many people that are going so fast, they're not thinking, I actually may not be living my values. So if you probably wrote a values set, I'm guessing family wouldn't be like, I don't know, value number 80, I'm guessing. You know, right, exactly. It's probably up there somewhere. So if you did a values inventory and then compared how much is Kaylee living some of those, I'm not picking on you. All of us would be in that. You'd be like, hmm, I teach this stuff. I have a values inventory. You know, I've, hundreds, if not thousands, have gone through it and then, okay, hmm. Yes. <laughs> you probably I had think- that moment, right? Oh my goodness, for sure. And I think you pointed to it. There's sort of the like the cobbler whose children have no shoes. There's sort of the in doing the work with and for other people, there can be sort of a a forgetfulness around doing the work for yourself. And in some ways, this is a really beautiful bridge to 8080 that we start with the mindset of radical generosity. So instead of 50-50 fairness, right, to stretch to 8080 to radical generosity. But what you're describing is one of the foundational principles of shared success. And first is really, do you know your own values? And then have you had the conversation with your partner to ensure that those values align? So to your point, we actually now have a chalkboard in our kitchen for that family. (laughs) (laughs) We put our values and we'll have conversations often, you know, sort of on our hikes where We'll ask, you know, hey, are we living in alignment with these? Are we choosing love or are we choosing something else? Are we choosing impact or are we choosing something else? And if we're choosing something else, to your point, 
is there a different value that now is superseding the ones we have, or is there an adjustment that needs to take place in our lives? And what I've found and what we've found is that knowing those values lets you set clearer priorities and that informs your boundaries where you can say yes and no to things with a much clearer conscience because it's rooted in you know, love is a value of ours like that quality of relationship which shows up you know with my daughter with my husband with my family that's important and if i'm not living that gosh i need to make different choices i think what you're saying is so important i think it was socrates said something like unexamined life is not worth living well you've got to know yourself but you've also got to know your partner you know the person that you're in your case married to and and what you collectively think is important and so many people they're so busy with to-do lists and, you know, if you have young kids, you know, I've got to take my kid to soccer, ballet, whatever it is, and it's who's doing what and where and i got to work late. And it's you have conversations on to-do lists rather than who are we, what are we about. And so talk about, about this because I'm fascinated with, you know, everybody talks about fairness, 50-50, how do you split things up? And so this whole idea of, you know, radical generosity and... Um, so talk about the old paradigm and the new paradigm. What's the difference between the typical, it's all got to be 50-50, split it down the middle, which, I mean, okay, so it's hard to argue oh, against fairness. I mean, right. it doesn't sound like such a terrible concept, but talk about how what you're advocating is radically different. Yeah, well, so if fairness worked, I would say we should keep it. The trouble is that it doesn't actually work. And it takes me to interviews. There was this brilliant story where a couple was talking about their relationships with their parents. And they were saying, you know, so we did Father's Day with your family. And so we're going to do Mother's Day with my family. Mm-hmm. Well, for your family, we left on Friday and came back on Sunday. So for <laughs> my family, we should leave on Friday and come back on Sunday. And it was hilarious because what they were talking about, when they actually unpacked it, both of them said, neither of us want to go for the same duration. We only want to go, you know, Saturday for lunch. And yet, because we had to make it fair, there was all sorts of kind of horse trading around things that they didn't actually even want. So one way it doesn't work is because you end up advocating for things that you don't really even desire. And the second reason it doesn't work is it's actually a psychological principle, which is called availability bias. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but the idea is I know everything that I do in service of our relationship. So I know, you know, every soccer practice that I drop off at, I know every, you know, thank you card that I write. And I also know every invisible hour that I spend thinking about Thanksgiving dinner and who's gluten-free and what we should serve and how to arrange it so that it's COVID safe, et cetera, et cetera. My partner doesn't know most of those things. And I don't know most of the things that they're up to. Some things I can see where I watch him sort of, you know, drive the trash cans down the driveway to, you know, have the trash go out. But I miss, hey, did, you know, did he have to have a conversation to, you know, fix something that happened in our finances or, you know, who's waiting for the cable guy, right? There's so much that's invisible that fairness ends up being where I completely overestimate the things that I'm doing and underestimate the things that you're doing so we can never even get to an accurate picture to strive for fairness. Boy, well, that, that is so well said. I mean, um, 
and some of it too, uh, there'll be, you know, things that each person is good at and not good at, you know, like in, um, in my case, um, I married an American girl who I met in Australia. We've been married actually a little over 30 years and very blessed. And she's very creative. She's an interior designer by profession. And she's just, uh, we have a wonderful home. She's an incredible cook. I'm not, you know. So if we did 50-50 fairness about cooking, the right. family would suffer. You yeah. know, <laughs> that wouldn't be so. Now, obviously, happy to wash dishes and all that and, you know, take the lead on that. I mean, my kids are in their 20s, so obviously they're at an age where they actually can't help with that. But, you know, she's creative, so she really doesn't like numbers. That's not right or wrong. It's how she's wired. So she's happy for me to do the finances and, you know, because I'm from Australia, it can be a little bit complicated between Australian stuff and U.S. stuff, and it gets a tad complex. But when it comes to major decisions, whoever's taking the lead will make sure the other person's informed and you're on the same page, but it's, we've sort of come to a rhythm where we both do what we're good at and interested in. And if something needs to be fixed, I'm pretty detail orientated. So I'm kind of like the secretary, basically, which I'm happy to be my wife's secretary. I mean, I have no problem with that. So, you know, or I can need to call this contractor or this and arrange this, got it, I'll make it happen. And so it happens. So I don't know. I mean, you just, it's more just making sure each person does what they can contribute. So I don't know, does that make sense or fit yeah. at all? Kind of. Yeah. Well, so I think you're saying two things that are really connected. So one is about you would miss out on joy if you tried to make it totally fair to the point of right. she enjoys cooking, right? right? Just not only would the family suffer, I'm not because <laughs> we're cooking too much, but there's a space where she enjoys it. So trying to make it fair actually is a net negative. I think the other thing that you're speaking to, though, is intentional roles. Mm-hmm. That one of the things that we found, especially in our interviews, is that people will end up doing things sort of just because they do. And we fondly refer to it as the wing it approach. Mm-hmm. And that there was one couple we were talking with, and I thought it was so funny, where the dad was saying, I don't know exactly how this happened, but I'm the toothbrush guy. Like, there was no conversation about it, but if he's not there, the children don't brush their teeth. He's like, there's something very strange about this. But there's there's a way that you and your wife, it sounds like, have made really wise choices where you say, I'm going to take sort of the more detail-oriented things. I'm going to take sort of more of the financial piece. And she says, I'm going to take the creative or the design or the, you know, cooking piece but you both know, so there's not toe-stepping, nor is there resentment where she's like, how come I'm not doing that? And you're like, you're also not saying, how come you're not balancing you know, this account? Right, right. No, I mean, it's it's true. I mean, I don't know where it fits because I'm no expert on marriage or whatever, but certainly other concepts that, you know, words like acceptance and, and forgiveness, like, for instance, you know, I grew up in a very wealthy background. So, you know, I'm not like Mr. Fixit. Yes, I can assemble an IKEA piece of furniture, but if you want me You're to, better than I am. you know, if you want me to build a deck, no, I'm not the build the deck guy. But it's funny, you know. I did not grow up in a very wealthy background, and <laughs> I can't do that stuff either. I can, I can hammer a nail in the wall, but that's about it. So it's not just me. Okay, it's good to know. <laughs> We're all in good company here. There you but go. yeah, I guess my point is. My wife's dad, you know, was an oral surgeon and, you know, did fine and all that. 
but he was missed to fix it. So it's like, well, my dad can do this and this. Why do we have to call something? Well, fortunately, we had the means to do that. But it's like, I don't have any interest in that, nor am I good at it. And so, you know, we each, you know, had some things in which we had to accept about the other. And then when we make mistakes, you know, kind of, obviously, I'm a big believer in forgive and communication. I'm sort of hypervigilant about communication. I'm often accused of over-communicating. <laughs> you know, you know, it's like, you know, if I think there's a 1% chance there's an issue, make sure there's not. I'm very vigilant that way. But So acceptance, forgiveness, where does that fit in sort of the 80-80 concept? Because obviously these are not new concepts, but yeah. What's yeah, your thought so- about all that? I think that that would fit in the in the mindset pillar, right? So if we think about sort of mindset and structure as being the two mm-hmm. pillars, that in this mindset of radical generosity, there's in some ways sort of three mutually reinforcing positive mm-hmm. things. So one is this idea of contribution. So I want to show up giving my best. But I think what you're describing is wearing the glasses of appreciation Mm -hmm. rather than those of criticism Mm -hmm. that as you're contributing the gifts to us and the family, I notice those, I speak to those, I recognize those, I I appreciate you for them rather than wearing my glasses, always of deficiency where how come you can't fix that? Or, you know, how come your cooking isn't great or whatever it might be that as we are giving to the relationship from a spirit of radical generosity, as we're seeing our partners through those glasses of appreciation, so also seeing them through radical generosity. And then there's clearing, which is really when something happens because we're human, we make mistakes, we'll say things that are off to reveal that inner experience. Hey, when you said that, I felt embarrassed and to make a request about it. My request is that in front of our friends, you present me in a positive light. And What I notice, and we were talking about candor earlier and its importance in leadership, I think in intimate relationships is just as important because that little tiny thing, if you clear it right away, it is that. It's an opportunity for knowing each other and closeness. But if that little tiny thing somehow gets reinforced or gets bigger or grows legs and runs away, before you know it, there's a significant issue that in some ways has a, a very addressable root had you caught it early. I think it's so true. I mean, you talk about radical generosity. The thought came to mind is sort of radical encouragement. I mean, again, as I mentioned, it's one of my highest values. But, you know, sort of encouragement begins at home. If Rather than tell your friends, oh, you know, my husband, my wife, boy, I really like A or B, well, how about telling them? And, you know, as you say, cut them some slack when they make mistakes and yeah, one of the things I think people are loath to do in our society is apologize. Because people think apologize is weakness and or vulnerability, which I think it's is strength. It's okay. I mean, I have this attitude, which I don't always live. If there's a 50-50 chance I'm responsible, why not apologize? You know? I mean, I'm a person of faith, so it's like, I think God will cut me some slack if I apologize for something I wasn't guilty of. I mean, it what the universe won't hold it against me. I think it's okay, you know? Yeah. Or on yeah. the side of, you know, I'm not saying you go overboard, apologize things, you know, is totally not your fault. But um, I know there are certain principles to me that are really, um, you know, that whole radical generosity, encouragement, vulnerability, you know, being willing to listen and admit maybe that you were wrong. And I don't know, I feel like that doesn't always happen, you know, yes. and that's where I, the I, snowballs happen, you know. 
I think that you're naming something so powerful, which is it is vulnerable. And I appreciate Brene Brown so much for helping translate vulnerability into an expression of courage, because certainly that's how I experience it. But there is a trust enhancement in a vulnerable act, which can be revealing if something hurt my feelings, even if, you know, my inner voice is saying some version of you should be bigger than that or you shouldn't let right. little things bother you. But just it's vulnerable to say, gosh, that that affected me. And it's also vulnerable to say, I'm sorry, and to own your part and to recognize that sometimes intention and the experience that the other person has, they don't match. And to be able to clean that up where you say, gosh, that wasn't my intention. And I'm so sorry that it landed that way. So just talk about as with the 8080 book and all and you had, you know, successful consulting, speaking. How has that whole between 2007 and writing this book, how has that shifted maybe your paradigm or maybe career direction or I don't know if it has? I have a feeling it's caused a shift, not just internally, but in terms of what you do and where you see yourself going. Well, so especially sort of since writing or beginning this process of writing the book about two years ago, a lot has really shifted. So as I think about, you know, my work, the paradigm has become really different that I would say I am certainly guilty for the first 13 years of my marriage, really thinking about me and what my career was going to be and being supportive and really jazzed about the things that my husband was doing, but sort of saying, I have my things and you have your things and not thinking about it in terms of how do we win together? And so being in the conversation just from a different perspective where instead of saying, hey, it would be good for me to take on this client, or it would be good for my career to do this keynote, really asking the question, what's in the best interest of us and our relationship and our family? And uh, it's a little cheesy, but I'll tell you anyway. So we named our family unit so the first two letters of each of our names, so it's Kajona and for Keely awesome. and Jory is, <laughs> and uh, so we will ask, well, is that in the best interest of Kajona? <laughs> We've made really different choices based on, okay, what's in the best interest is for me to not travel that week or what's in the best interest is for you to cut down to 50% time. What's in the best interest is for us to get outside help for that. But framing it differently has absolutely been a paradigm shift. And it's interesting that we started talking about you worked a lot with leaders in professional contexts, and now you're spending time in personal relational contexts. None of us think twice about doing what you just said in professional context. Is this in the best interest of XYZ Corporation? Is this in best interest of my team? Uh, why is it so hard or harder to do it in the context of relationships? I hear you say that about your family, about Kajona, and I think, wow, that's revolutionary. It's not revolutionary in business. Why is it revolutionary in personal relationships? It's a great question, Gary. I think there's actually, there's two sides to that. I think what you're describing happens in excellent organizations where that is explicit. Make the decision that's best for the organization versus, and I will hear leaders say, make the decision that's in the best interest of the organization, not the decision that you think I'm going to like. 
And I think in a lot of organizations, there actually can be kind of a slipping back into, well, gosh, what will advance my career rather than what's in the best interest of the organization? You know, what will make me look good versus what's in it, you know, how will this promote the product or the service or the company or whatever it is that we're up to? Answering your question though, I think it's one of the, the great mysteries of life that <laughs> many of the things that are natural in organizations, for instance, almost every organization I've worked with has a mission or a vision mm-hmm. and a set of values. And yet many, many family units don't, at least they don't have it explicitly stated. I think some of it is recognizing that the lines are blurry. I think certainly now where home and work as intermingled as they have ever been. But I think there's also a space where some people feel resistant to the idea of running their family like a business, that they're sort of like, I want work to be work and I want family to be family. And I respect that line. I think, however, bringing in some of the best tools from both sides is really valuable. Bring in that planning, those values from the corporate into your family bring from your family that idea of radical generosity, which in a corporate setting is often phrased as assume positive intent. I mean, you raise a really fascinating point that when in a corporate organizational setting, you think what's in the best interest of the organization? Well, your family unit is an organization. Yes. So what's in the best interest of this family organization as a whole? Because we're a unit. Not about my interest or his interest or her interest. What's best for the team and if you ask the right questions, if you're people of goodwill, you can probably come up with the right answer. Then you maybe go back to your values list. So if we have to choose between, you know, my career, your career, or other organizations, which organization is a highest priority in our values list? It's probably your family organization is the most important, more important than other organizations or careers. And then that's a value judgment. I'm guessing it's probably the way yours is. So if that's true, then let's make sure we put the values of the family organization first. Let's talk about what that looks like. It's not about winners and losers. Let's collectively agree. And and it's probably mission possible. It sounds like you can have a big war, but with the right questions and the right mindset, those things can get resolved. Does that make sense? I mean, people don't think that way, right? I I think that's right. And I think, you know, maybe we'll mix in too many metaphors here, but I think about it also like sports teams, Mm -hmm. that if you're only thinking about your own stats, um, I recently watched The Last Dance, right? If Michael Jordan were thinking exclusively about his own stats, they would not have been world champions all those years. And you could see if you watched that, there was a mindset shift where it went from, I'm going to score the most points, I'm going to have the most rebounds, I'm going to be the MVP, to we're going to win as a team and as a unit. And with that mindset shift, totally different things became possible. But what you're saying is if you want to win in marriage or in life, don't think about your own stats. Yes. That's kind of what you're saying. Win as a team. Yeah. So it's, it seems like it's sort of a rat. So as one of the things you talk a lot about here in Crucible Leadership is we have this paradigm which we talk about that we're not against success, but what we say is, you know, we want people to lead a life of significance, which means a life on purpose, dedicated to serving others. However, each individual, uh, you know, however they look at that paradigm. So, you know, I mean, it's pretty clear to me as I see what you're doing, but talk about what a life of significance looks like now, given where you are now, 
and given what you're just doing with 80-80 marriage, I mean, it, I could guess, but rather than guess, <laughs> what does I, that I look love, like for I you? I would love to hear your, I would love to hear your <laughs> guess. Um, my greatest dream work is that this book it would have an impact so that couples have additional tools to be able to win as a team. And that in my world, the more sort of teamwork, the more generosity, the more love that there is in the world, the better place it gets to be. And that if these tools can serve in that way, that feels to me like a very significant contribution. Can you imagine a generation of kids growing up in families where their parents practice radical generosity and that's modeled for them. So they, in their turn, with their partners, husbands, wives, that would cause a ripple-like revolution, a positive revolution of blessing, if you will. That is a dream that I would love to see come to fruition. That sound <laughs> was the captain turning on the fasten seatbelt sign. We are uh, going to be landing the plane soon. Uh, before we do that, there's a couple things I want to do, and I know Warwick will want to ask you another question, I'm sure. But one thing, Kaylee, first of all, how can listeners get a hold of you, find out about the book, find out more about you and the services you offer? Absolutely. So the easiest place to find out about the book is 8080marriage.com. And those are 8080, right? 8080marriage.com, exactly. And if you are an Instagram person every day, we put a tip or a challenge out on Instagram. So follow us there on Instagram. It's also 8080 marriage. So 8080 marriage. And then you can find out more just about me either on that site or at KayleeKlemp.com. And those are both with K's, correct? They are K-A-L-E-Y-K-L-E-M-P. See, with a last name like Schneeberger, I'm always very, very focused on, <laughs> on the spelling of things. I want to ask you one last question before I let you go and then Warwick will, will finish up. And that is, for people who are listening to this, our listeners who are hearing themselves in some of the crucible-like experiences you're talking about, and they don't know where to, to begin. They don't know what to do. What's next? I've heard this. This makes sense. But now what? One of the things Warwick has talked about much on the show of late in particular is the power of one small step. Um, you may not have to have the entire roadmap before you start moving toward a solution, moving beyond your crucible, but there is one small step. What, in your estimation, in your advice, in your wisdom, what's one small step listeners who find themselves maybe trying to live a 50-50 marriage and they want to get to an 80-80 marriage, what's one small step they can take? Well, so I think there's an internal step and there's an external step. So the internal step is to change your self-talk from fairness to generosity. At any time that sort of moment of resentment arises, just to change it to say, and in this moment, what would radical generosity look like? That's an internal shift. If you want more externally, I would say absolutely a small step is read the book, whether you implement <laughs> it or not. It's a great place to start. Bravo. The PR guy in me applauds that answer. <laughs> Warwick, back to you. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. So I think you've said before, there's probably been a shift in really your past. I think with the whole 80-80 marriage and how to have more fulfilled marriages and relationships is probably your passion, I'm guessing. So we also talk quite a bit here about legacy. As you think of what you would like your legacy to be 
how does the 80-80 marriage and that whole thing play into what you would like to feel like you've left the world in terms of all this? Gosh, feels like such a big question. So um, <laughs> that's why it's the last one, right? Do I get to define my own legacy? <laughs> For me, it's relationships across the board. So if the work that I do with leaders through, you know, 15 commitments and conscious leadership and drama free office creates healthier relationships for people as they spend so much of their time at work. And then those more connected, more generous relationships for people at home, if relationships are enhanced, gosh, it would be incredible if that were a piece of the legacy that I got to leave. Well, that right there was the sound that I've been in the communications business long enough to know when the last word spoken and that was it. Normally, I try to wrap up in some uh, key takeaways, but here we talked about transparency on this episode and I'm going to be transparent enough to say that I'm not nearly as good as Kaylee, so I wrote notes, but I'm not going to say them. Listener, your key takeaways are to listen to the show again because Kaylee really unpacks things extraordinarily well. It's her area of expertise, and um, this isn't a 50-50 exchange where I'm anywhere near as good as she is in doing that. So please go back, check out her website, listen to this show, and dig into the insights that she offers because the insights she offers can indeed help you through your crucibles. And Speaking of crucibles, until the next time we are together to talk about crucible experiences, to offer, uh, Warwick has said this, we operate in the realm of hope. That's what we do. We, we try to provide hope that you can move beyond your crucible. So until the next time we're together to talk about those things, please remember this about your crucible experience, whether it's professional or personal or a mixture of both. Right now, it seems extraordinarily painful, probably. It will not always feel that way. If you learn the lessons that your crucible is trying to teach you, if you dig in, if you're transparent, if you're vulnerable, if you're authentic, and you, you see inside what the crucible is trying to teach you, then learn those lessons and apply them moving forward. Your crucible in that case will not be the end of your story. In fact, it will be the beginning of a better story, a new chapter in your story. And why it is a better story is because that chapter in that book leads to a different destination. And that destination is a life of significance. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry, with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.